1: Welcome to Rolling Stone Music Now. We got a big episode. Today we're going to talk to Lars Ulrich of Metallica. But first, I'm going to talk to John Dolan, record reviews editor, about the album of the week, Frank Ocean. Hey, John. Hey, Nathan. So we've been listening to a lot of this record. It just came out a few days ago. Wait, I mean, there's actually two Frank Ocean records. There's a magazine. There's like pop-up shops. There may be lots of other things I don't even remember.
0: He made us wait, and then he gave us quite a lot pretty quickly. This is a record that's a, as I'm sure everyone listening to a music podcast in 2016 is well aware, a record that everyone has been waiting for. It's called Uh, Blonde. It's called Blonde. It was obviously Frank Ocean, kind of the most elusive and interesting and progressive artist in a very progressive moment for R&B. This was four years in the making after his album um Channel Orange which was the follow this is his second release but a breakthrough album that kind of established him as just this pathfinding artist and kind of a you know, 21st century update in some ways on sort of Stevie Wonder and Seventy soul, but also in the post-Kanye uh, vein. It's and, and- a
1: super influential record, you know, definitely one of the best, like, soul records of the last decade. He also made his name kind of singing along on tracks by Jay-Z uh,
0: and a lot of other people. Yeah, and, you know, obviously the biggest news he made was in coming out as bi in a hip hop RB world. But at the time, that was a major, major thing, and for people to kind of get behind that and get excited about that. And um, he did it very
1: publicly. Very publicly. right? A, a public tumble- statement, yeah. yeah.
0: Um, and, you know, that kind of gave this music, which is often about kind of, it's elusive music. It feels like different modes of identity are being processed while you listen to it, and that kind of helped that. So people really waited for this for a long time, and it finally sort of like... A, 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 Last week he put up a video on his website, uh, just of him building him stairs building a stair in, a just, right? in a warehouse. In a warehouse, just working in a workshop. It was and actually
1: a video album,
0: right? Yeah, it was, it, it, endless. And then yeah. he put then there was music um, with these kind of fragmented, kind of ambient tracks. Uh, and people were a little no, confused at first. Right. It was like, is this
1: the is album? This, the this is pretty out there, right? Very, yeah. just very atmospheric. Yeah. yeah.
0: And then everyone was waiting for this record. The, the, the actual record was supposed to be called "Boys Don't Cry," and there had been a lot of talk about this. And then he actually re- put out the next day a zine called "Boys An Don't, Don't Cry." Printed publications. Like, yeah. <laughs> right. It's like take notes. Magazines us, um, are back. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Please go. So people were lining up for Black Swan Black. There was one in London, one in New York, uh, one in L.A., and, and maybe one more place. But to get this magazine, and inside the magazine is a CD of this album called Blonde, which is the actual album. It's the album we've been waiting for for four years. And it's a complex... Amorphous but gorgeous, um kind of like amniotic. Listen, that can really sort of transport you, but also confuse you. It 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 comes from different places. It, it takes from different elements. In the liner notes to it, or the kind of credits to it, which are themselves also kind of vague. He thanks Beyonce. He thanks David Bowie. He thanks Brian Eno. He and thanks Kanye. Gang of Four. He, gang of too, Four. That's yeah, right. Yeah. The gang of right. Four. You know, critique of capitalism. Um, and the music itself kind of reflects that um I, one of the things it did obviously is build up this huge expectations but it's not that kind of lemonade type album where it explodes with kind of its grandiosity it's, right it's, where it's, like every track is this oh my god i'm right. listening I, to I,
1: this I, important record and i
0: yeah i kind of listened to it a little bit the wrong way where i was kind of okay well give me you know but it's the the, the video should have been a clue that this is not just about the time it takes to make something good it's also about the process of kind of being in between things, and, yeah. the, and the music is like that too. It's I like
1: his kind of journey through his moods, and then the the songs, which have more like conventional hooks, kind of creep up on you. It yeah. does. I mean,
0: it's it, it's funny. It, it feels as you listen to it more, it feels sh- kind of shorter. It, like it feels more compact. More you listen to it, but right, you know, the, 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 the which between, is a good sign because right. you you get more into it. Yeah, you know, the in between is obviously with his sexuality, but also just with the the mood of the music. It has kind of a late summer, early autumn kind of just sense to it when you're listening to it. The metaphors are often like drug metaphors, and often swimming pools comes up. Up often kind of like being in between states in your body being in between states in your mind like being late at night wondering what the next thing is one of the great lines in the song nike's is i'm not him but i'll mean something to you
2: well let you guys prophesy we gonna see the future first living so the last night feels like a past life speaking of the don't know what got in the people devil be possessor homies demons try to body jump why you think i'm in this bitch? when the fucking yarmulke
0: there's all that kind of stuff it's like kind of like the, the very honest Portrayal of the way we are not sure about relationships. Right, is there's a, big a lot of love. stuff. Yeah, and
1: ambiguity and kind of disappointment and
0: complex feelings. And yeah, I mean, he's an R&B artist who seems in this record to draw from everything except R. You know, it's like it's a guitar record. There's there's one song, uh, pretty sweet, which sounds like if like Eddie Van Halen tried to do. Robert Fripp's No Pussy it's
1: like, there, there is a surprising amount of guitar, right? It's you know, a yeah. pretty
0: watery guitar almost closer to like what you'd hear in an indie pop record and then if you think about you know, he self-released it he was on De- uh, Def Jam, right? Now he's not he, he put it out in a zine I mean, he's taking from all these other parts of culture that don't have much to do you know, R&B counts a lot on an intimacy and a familiarity with the, with the intentions and, the, and even just the vocal presence of the artist but on this record especially the first song especially on Nike's he switches his voice up a ton the whole record switches up his voice a, a, a ton and you're not really sure which Frank Ocean you're going to get from song to song and which right. kind of sentiment you're going to get from song to song so it's keeping you off guard while you know the music itself keeps pulling you back in I guess it's, it's right. quite a record and it's one of those records where uh, let's,
1: let's cover a couple more songs right, like, yeah. uh, Ivy is one song that I, I thought was really that kind of jumped out for me if I could
2: see the walls, I could see it faking if you could see
0: The second song and it's a soft you know kind of relatively somber kind of watery guitar track the song that really for me i keep coming back and the song that introduced itself to me as a song i know i'm going to be kind of like that's telling tell me there's going to be more things here was this pink and white that's the way every day
2: goes every time we've no control if the sky is pink and white if the ground is black and yellow it's the same way you show me
0: it's kind of his version of summertime in the living is easy. It's just a beautiful kind of languid, gorgeous song about kind of like lazy days or whatever. It's it's quite lovely. Um, there's a lot of that. It's a record that makes you kind of come to it. Um, there are a couple of funny skits that actually, and
1: I often hate kind of spoken word <laughs> interludes, uh, but these kind of just feel meaningful. There's a kind of a funny message from his mom on, on his voicemail about don't take drugs in college. And there's kind of a funny story from a, this... Uh, a French acquaintance <laughs> yeah. about Facebook and then it, it ends with on a very sweet note with the, the song Godspeed
2: I will always love you how i do let go of a prayer for you
1: he's kind of singing to someone you don't really know who it is kind of saying i'll always be there for you but you kind of get the feeling that he might be singing to himself
0: a very gospel yeah, no, the gospel yeah. thing is a big part of it too, and and the kind of meltiness of the ballads and and the singing when it's just you know his voice is just continues to be striking and arresting. Like you know, it's interesting. Like the I, I kind of am already realizing that with, compared to Channel Orange, like the, the reference there was definitely '70s soul and R and B at its kind of most like expansive. And here I felt like it really was like. It, you know, along with the gospel, along with things, but a lot of sort of 70s kind of art rock. I mean, think of like Berlin Bowie and maybe the ambient Eno. It was almost like if he made like an ambient Eno album that if, if like Another Green World was like somehow more ambient or something. It's like that stuff comes up in this as well. It, it, it has that feeling. It, it reminds you of music beyond the genre it's in and it kind of ends up being r in a pretty tangential sense.
1: And this is going to be a record that I'm sure we're going to be spending a lot more time with and it's going to reveal itself in different ways. I mean, that's the thing but, too. It's
0: like we're talking about this a week after it came out and it's right. not that kind of record i mean right. it really is a spend time with it go around with it and see how it evolves as you listen to it kind of record
1: well i have a feeling we'll be coming back to it uh in our year-end report i'm, I'm sure, sure and yes. in, the, in the meantime uh john dolan thanks for coming on with uh, your first takes yeah thank you nathan all right And that was a little bit of Hardwired, the new single from Metallica, who have been away for a long, long time. That's the first track from their upcoming album, Hardwired to Self-Destruct, which is out in November. Uh, and Andy Green talked to Lars Ulrich. We had the first interview with a member of Metallica a few hours after they announced it. Andy, what can you tell me about this record? What do you know?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's been eight years, and they've been talking on making a record for a long time. And it's finally done. I've just heard the one song, which is hardwired, and it's very fast, it's very aggressive, it's very thrashy, it's sort of similar to the first few albums. It's like a Kill em All type song, which actually inspired th- their new record. So the last thing they did do, they did do that Lou Reed record. Yeah, right? they that did was... Lulu with Lou Reed, but that was like a Lou Reed record where they were the backing band. Right.
1: And then the, the album before that was Death Magnetic. Benedict,
2: which was 2008. Right. That was with Rick Rubin. This is with his engineer as a producer.
1: How did the How, how did the, the
2: Metallica Nation receive Death Magnetic? They received it much better than St. Anger. They hated St. Right. That, Anger. That was a divisive <laughs> record. Yeah. Uh, Death Magnetic was Rick Rubin trying to get him back to the master puppet sound and told him that you shouldn't be ashamed of your early work. Which is a meme
1: with Rick Rubin. The producer, he often yeah, tells big artists he, you need to get... You right. kinda be at peace with your earlier, yeah. greater albums. Right? Yeah, that,
2: that was his Black Sabbath spiel also. You're right. really go back to Paranoid. Hey, it works. Yeah. So anyway, so you got on the phone with Lars? Yeah, I, at this point, they were still working on the album. Rob was still playing bass on a song that day. But this was the day that they rolled it all out. It was a big surprise. So nobody outside of their studio has even heard most of this album yet, besides Hardwired. Which really didn't throw us off because, yeah. frankly, just Lars Ulrich is just wonderful yeah. to talk to yeah. anytime.
1: He's yeah. probably one of, one of our favorite rock interviews, yeah. up there with Noel Gallagher. Maybe yeah. not quite full Gallagher level, pretty but close. Like they are pretty freaking awesome. There's
2: almost no other band where you want the drummer to do the interview. Well, I would normally push back against that. Where they're saying, "Okay, it's just it's just the drummer calling you." Ringo, I don't know, <laughs> maybe yeah, well.
1: Questlove. Quest love of the roots. Yes. Yeah. Right. We're not gonna go one. down this rabbit yeah. hole. Yeah.
2: There are definitely others, but there's very few of them. No, but he's definitely he could be the, yeah.
1: the most loquacious drummer. Yes. Yeah.
2: yeah, and he loves talking to the press and he's so conversational. You know, you'd feel that he's not filtering all of his answers through like a media lens in his brain. He's just sort of talking to you. He really snookered you, I can yeah. tell. All right. uh, but no, no, I, 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 I like talking
1: to Lars. Why don't we just let Lars do the talking? Yeah. And so here's your conversation. It's
3: been a little bit of a crazy day today. That's
2: no problem. I am loving the new single. I appreciate that. Yeah. Oh thanks, man. Yeah, and what's great is it's so it's so uncommercial. It's not something that you were clearly that you were caring much about top forty radio, right? I mean that wasn't on your mind I would imagine. <laughs> uh
3: no. <laughs> not on your mind. No, that was not on anybody's mind. Listen, I don't even I mean I don't even know anything about any of that stuff anymore I mean you find that you know increasingly I think as you uh, you know grow a little older and and probably less caught up in the in the kind of competitive element of a lot of that stuff that you often are maybe in your 20s or whatever I I, I don't even listen to the radio so Mm -hmm. when you say you know top 40 and all that type of stuff I mean I, I don't even know where to start or I don't know what any of it means anymore I'm such a a different time now, you know? Mm-hmm. So we just made this record, and then in the last two weeks we started trying to figure out what to do with it. And uh, it's just like, it's it's sort of like the Wild West out there in terms of, of, you know, what do you actually do with new music in 2016 once you recorded it? Because it seems like everybody's got such a different kind of perception of that, you know? So we okay. just wrote a bunch of songs and um, decided that uh, uh, this song "Hardwired" would be a uh, fitting first taste of, of 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 what's going on there, you know.
2: Huh. So, just to take a step back, can you tell me your goals going into this record? Did you want it t- to be different than, than, than the last one, or similar in certain ways? Just like, just like, what were your goals? On
3: day um, you know there. We realized as we got kind of well underway that there never really was, you know. On the last record, Death Magnetic, we sat down with Rick Rubin, and he was very sort of uh, um, encouraging and, and very. Uh, there was a lot of, of talks about sort of what we should do and where it was going, mm-hmm. and um, he was very sort of great at, at kind of sort of firing us up and 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 making us, you know, and talking to us about being kind of comfortable with, you know, maybe being inspired by our past and certain things like that. You know, this album, um, you know, we met Greg Fiddleman, who, you know, produced this next record. Mm -hmm. Uh, with Rick, he was kind of Rick's engineer, and he was really the day to day. And he's basically been with us ever since, coming up on ten years. He did the whole movie. He's done the, did the Lou Reed project. He, he's done every every single thing we've done the last ten years. So when we sat down uh, and started getting this new album underway about a year ago, uh, there wasn't really like. Um, there wasn't any sort of talks about what are we doing. We we just sort of picked it up from, from I think where we left off last time. And then, um, it sort of started shaping itself as it went along. So there wasn't really like a, an MO or, or, or some sort of a big thing about like, this is the direction, you know, we got to, you know, it, it just, it, we had, when we, when we sort of got back together again, um, about a year and a half ago, I started thinking about new new music. Um, I was given, basically, in Metallica, every single thing that we do is recorded. So when we're jamming here at our HQ in our studio, when we're on the road, when we're warming up, when we're sound checking, whatever we're doing, we're always being recorded. And um, so I was given an iPod uh, by our sort of house engineer, Mike, and <laughs> it had sixteen 1, hundred and fifty ID dumpers on it. <laughs> um, so there were there were 1,650 ideas or riffs or jams, basically, from when we left off uh, on Death Magnetic, you know, what, six, seven years ago or whatever. So there was a lot of stuff to sort of sit down, and, and I just started listening to food and started putting, you know, Check marks next to the stuff that stood out. You know, IP 723 sounds really good, Uh, that kind of stuff. And then James and I sort of started just connecting all the dots uh, like we usually do, but there wasn't like a real big kind of MO kind of we got to do this or let's, you know, this side. It was just let's figure out how, you know, how this stuff starts sounding when it's organically. Kind of put together and, and organically take shape in, in 2014 and 15. You know, How did you think about
2: using Rick Rubin again, or you decided to go in a different direction? Or-
3: um, yeah, I, I think the biggest the biggest thing really was that we felt that listen, we loved working with Rick, and Rick's been a friend of mine for. Uh, 25 years, I think, uh, even more coming up on 30 years, and um, it, but the biggest thing was that we wanted to make this record at home, mm-hmm. and we have our own setup here in in San Francisco, you know, just north of the bridge in Marin, and have a full studio and our rehearsals and our websites and our fan clubs and, and you know our social media and everything we do is all in one building, and, and you know we. We spent 75% of the last record down in L.A., and and I think we're at a point now where we don't feel that we necessarily need to sort of leave home or go somewhere to sort of be able to focus. We understand that making a record at home may slow it down, you know, X percent uh, from, you know, distractions quote unquote but we like those distractions and we like to be around our families and we like to sort of be in our home environment and, and we felt that that being in, in, in Northern California would be better for us mentally mm-hmm. and um, you know I think with Rick there was always kind of a an unspoken thing with Rick that that you know if we're gonna make a record with Rick or work with Rick that it would be in L.A. So we never really uh, talked about it to be honest with you. And we had such a an awesome run going with uh, with Greg Siddleman that we just sort of picked up you know where we left off for the last couple. You know we did a a Deep Purple tribute thing a couple of years ago, and we did a rainbow, something for Ronnie Theo a few years ago, and obviously we did the Lou Reed record and everything that we've done since Death and the Magnetic was done uh, here at home in, in Northern California. So that's kind of where we huh. continue.
2: So just walk me through an average day of working on this record.
3: <laughs> we, James and I, um, generally would drop our kids at school or kind of be involved in the school grind, as we call it up here. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then uh, we would meet down here at HQ uh, in the, at least as far as rock and roll is concerned, in the ungodly hour around 9 Uh a.m. And um, we would generally work till school pickup. uh, And so we'd kind of do the 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. kind of grind. Mm -hmm. And in the beginning, we spent a lot of time, you know, Making a Metallica record is sort of like a giant puzzle. It's, it's, you know, we had, you know, all this material and all this stuff, and I sort of went through it first and picked out um, what I thought was the stuff that stood out, and then James and I would sit down. We sat down for maybe a couple of months um, and connected all those pieces together into songs. Mm-hmm. And then he took about a month or so and was working on some vocal ideas over those skeletons and then Fiddleman showed up uh, about a year ago and we started kind of I think we had I don't know around 18 uh, I think it was around 18 songs and then we went through them and and kind of fine you know fine tooth comb and all that and um, whittled it down to 12 13 and then we started recording last summer but you know, Metallica's always got you know, a thing that really separates us, at least from our, you know, younger us and, and I think to a degree from a lot of other bands is that we really do like to sort of keep mixing it up. So, you know, last summer we did Lollapalooza, last summer we did Rock and Rio, last summer we did uh, Reading and Leeds in England mm-hmm. we did a couple shows in Russia you know we're always sort of running off and playing somewhere you know I think we, we did Rock and Rio even down in uh, Brazil in September so there's no when you say sort of like what's a typical day it's not like we sort of go in for three months and have six days a week you know that are the same and then the records done we we do like a month or two and then we'd go play some shows and then we'd take a couple weeks off and then we'd you know do another month or two so we really like to mix it up but generally at least here in the studio the uh the day has a tendency to be sort of a uh, uh, we're primarily here during uh, school hours, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then uh, the rest of the time we're sort of hanging with the kids and the family and, and doing all that domestic stuff. Okay.
2: And I'm sure, I'm sure, leaving for tours, you would come back and be very energized after playing live. Okay? Well, it's
3: always inspiring, yeah. Right. And you know, you got to understand that these tours we do. I mean, we have a in our band we have a what we try to adhere to, which is a two week rule, which mm-hmm. is that we don't. We don't tour or go on the road for longer than we we do everything sort of in in two-week increments. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you go away for, you know, ten days or two weeks or whatever, and you play four or five or six shows or whatever, and you just get totally inspired and and reinvigorated and and energized and come home and bring some of that kind of uh, rambunctious energy into the studio. And, and, you know, the great thing about the way we do it is we never get – we never get – sort of uh, caught in the same same rut or whatever, like over and over. We'll you know we're, we'll work for a few weeks in the studio and then, like I say, go play a couple shows or, mm-hmm. you know, stuff like that. So it, it's always mixed up. So we always feel that we, we never get a chance to uh, sort of, you know, burn ourselves out on one huh. particular thing.
2: So how soon into the process did you realize you had a double album on your hands?
3: Um that was actually really late because uh, we sat down. We didn't really sit down and try to figure out what we were going to do with all these songs. Um, I think the first kind of talk about that was in June. Mm-hmm. So we had, uh, I don't know, I think we recorded 14, 13, 13 songs. Um, and we sat down and we listened to them and we invited so um, you know, Peter and Cliff uh, and Mark and Tony, sort of the people that are part of our inner circle, and they, we all sat down and listened to all this stuff, uh, sort of, for about a day or two, and we came to the conclusion that we felt that, um, basically, like last, on the Death Magnetic album, we felt that there were some A songs and some B songs, and we decided not to release the songs, and we put them out later as as some sort of like bonus stuff about a year later, but we we thought that there was no real A or B songs, that all these songs were sort of fairly even in in how we perceived them, so we figured that, um, since we didn't feel that there were any duds in there... Mm in too narcissistic form, uh, we thought that we would just put out the whole shebang, and then that clocked in at uh, almost 80 minutes. And then we thought it'd be cool to kind of split it up into uh, two CDs and, and just kind of do more of a, a kind of a, an A and a B type of thing, or just you know with a vinyl and all that type of stuff. Right. So,
2: you know, uh, I've just heard the single, but it was f- it was pretty fast and like pretty thrashy. Is that consistent through the album? Is that the, is that the vibe of it?
3: Um, yeah, it's, it's probably... Uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty indicative of of, of of what's going on. There's some of the uh, other songs that are a little bit longer, kind of more some of the old-school stuff, I guess, we were doing on, you know, Lightning and Puppets and and some of that stuff. Um, so, yeah, but it's, it's pretty indicative of... Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a pretty... Honestly, I I don't have any perspective yet. There, mm-hmm. I just, we finished up rehearsing. You know, we have a show this weekend in Minneapolis, mm-hmm. and we finished up rehearsing, and and we have I think uh, one song left to mix. And I just walked by the control room, and Rob was redoing a baseline in the verses because uh, mm-hmm. he felt like the baseline could be better. So oh, wow. I mean, the record's not even done yet. You know, it, huh. it's it's so I, I don't have any kind of. Distance to it in terms of, let me tell you, you know, um, it's kind of like this, or Andy, it's kind of like that, or whatever. I mean, it's it's definitely. Um, I, I would say one thing that Death Magnetic I felt was uh, a pretty progressive, had lots of starts and stops, and lots of kind of um, sort of jerky progressive stuff that Rick encouraged us to do some some uh, he used the word ridiculous he would say like make it more ridiculous Mm -hmm. that was a a favorite saying of his and and we tried to sort of like fuck it up and make it as you know sideways and as weird as possible in certain spots this record's probably a little more linear Mm -hmm. um probably a little punkier in places and a little um just you know maybe slightly less progressive Mm -hmm. um I think the, maybe slightly more about moods and grooves and kind of drumming is maybe a bit simpler. And it's about sort of the riffs kind of really speaking um, and and that it's a little more uh, sort of maybe groove-oriented. But some of the songs are also a bit longer. I mean, there's definitely... Um, a few songs that hit the, the six to seven minute mark, and so on. So this new song, "Hardwired," is sort of one side of it, but it's all pretty, pretty uppity. Uh, the one thing there's not is sort of the big Metallica ballady kind of. Well, I don't know if I should give all this away, but since you're asking, there's there's not sort of you know two three rock ballads or anything like that. It, mm-hmm. It's pretty. Uh, it's pretty uppity stuff, most of it.
2: Yeah, and the titles—they look pretty intense. A song like "Spit Out the Bone" or like "Murder One" or "Am I Sad?" Yeah,
3: this is uh angry. this is uh, this is all pretty dark stuff. I um, you know, on on this record, James was a little bit more in his own headspace. Mm-hmm. So each record's kind of different. Some records are a little more collaborative. On Things like subjects or, or whatever. This one, James was a little bit more in his headspace in de- his own headspace than Death Magnetic, and um, uh, it's pretty dark most of it. There's a there's a lot of uh, pretty bleak, dark uh, stuff about sort of you know, self discovery and sort of relationships, not just with other people but with you know the different personalities that are hidden within and, and stuff like that. I, I haven't, I haven't actually sat down with the whole batch of songs yet. And it, there was some early artwork stuff that came in uh, two, three days ago. I started glancing at some of the lyrics, just sort of seeing them all together. Do you know what I mean? But definitely. Uh, the, the the song titles, and that's just come together also in the last week as we've sat down to try yeah. to sort of take out the best things. And, and I'm seeing now, because so much of that stuff when you do it is very instinctive, mm-hmm. and so it's it's not really until a little bit later in the process that you start getting some um, some perspective. But um, it's pretty bleak uh, from the uh Twisted Mind of James Hetfield, yes. There's uh, definitely some some pretty in-depth stuff there.
2: It's the first record on your own label off of a major... Did that change anything?
3: No. That's a good question. Uh, No, I I mean, we've always been pretty autonomous and kind of hovering in our own world. Uh, I'd say... I I don't think so. I mean, it, it... uh, obviously it's a little more daunting when you have to figure out what to do with it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I would say, you know, when we put out Death Magnetic in 2008, you know, there was still the remnants of a music business. <laughs> right. And there was still uh, a sort of, you know, remnants of, 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 of a process of how you were expected to do it. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Uh, to release records. All that's obviously completely gone out the, the window now, and now it's it's anybody's guess what works and what doesn't. And I think, ultimately, you have to kind of look within just to figure out what is, what works for you, how do you, where do you see yourself in all this, and how do you want to share the music with, with the people that are interested in, in hearing it. And so, you know, I've come to the conclusion over the summer as we started looking at some of the stuff in the last six weeks that, you know, the, releasing a record is as much of a creative process as making one. And, and there's so many different ways to do it. And it just used to be, you know, back in the day, 20 years ago, like, okay, the record was done. And we were always, our managers were always great at keeping the record company and all the business stuff kind of outside of the studio we were very autonomous and left alone and not expected to sort of play the game or, or do any of that nonsense. But there was still, when the record was done, you gave it to somebody and then there was, there was like this process that fell into place, you know, mm-hmm. now it's like you got to fucking sit here and literally reinvent the wheel. What do you want to do with it? How do you want to get it out there? What, what does it all mean? And it's been, uh. An interesting, you know, six weeks. But you know, obviously, when when you are your own record label, we've made some. There's been some internal shiftings. Uh, you know, we've gotten more people to come out here and be in our HQ, and we're we're sort of operating more of of what we do out of Northern California than out of LA or out of New York. So I think metallic is becoming even more so. Uh, just continue to be more and more of an autonomous operation. And, um, you know, it's obviously super cool to not have any outside elements potentially polluting your process at the same time. There are also times where it's a little daunting. You kind of have occasionally, like, a holy fuck moment, like, what are we doing? <laughs> <laughs> now, <laughs> We're steering the ship, you know, one of those, you know?
2: Now, did you ever think about, a, about putting it out as a surprise or something, which is so common these days, or some sort of thing like that?
3: Um... Yeah, I think we did a pretty good job of keeping at least what happened today as a surprise. Yeah. Uh, so I think, you know, we sort of, you have to remember, and this is part of what we not struggle with, but, you know, we sort of, you know, we live in San Francisco, and you're not going to find a more progressive group of people than the people within 50 miles of where I'm talking to you on the phone. Mm-hmm. And so. Everything here is totally, you know, what's the latest thing we can do? What's How do we fuck shit up the most? But at the same time, you know, Metallica sells an awful lot of records and has an awful lot of fans in a lot of places around the world that still has a very traditional way of, of, of getting music and for every, you know, let's sit and reinvent the wheel as much as we can. There's, you know, 50,000 people in Croatia or Portugal or, you know, Ecuador or Venezuela or some other place that sort of just go down to the store and buy a Metallica CD when it shows up, you know. Right. So you got to kind of find the right balances, you know, in terms of, you know, the new song is up on spotify today where it should be the new song is up on itunes today where it should be the new song is up on our website where it should be it's on youtube where it should be but at the same time there's a little bit more of a, of a traditional thing that happens in in a lot of the rest of the world and, and so we figured you know that by the time it, it got to it you know we would still you know do a little bit of promotion and talk about the forthcoming record and right. we've got a few other things happening in October and then the record comes in November so there'll be at least what we feel for us is a nice balance between kind of new and progressive and still keeping one foot in, in ways that the, a lot of the rest of the world communicate. You know?
2: So you haven't played a proper tour of American arenas in a few years. are you That going, we have not. Will you launch one in support of this?
3: Uh, we're just figuring all that out right now. Um, we have some scattered kind of one offs and a bunch of stuff happening um, for the rest of the year. And then um, we're going to sit down, uh, you know, in the next couple of weeks and sort of, I mean, I mean, Yes, we're going to start doing some pretty next level tour. Or at least what's next level for us mm-hmm. uh, compared to how other people do it. We, we still were, we've told our our people that we're going to stick to our two week pods, which is what we prefer. But we'll be playing. You know, we did you know 180 shows on the Death Magnetic tour in two week pods over three years, and that's what works for us. But we're going to start uh, pretty much uh, full on touring. In January, and are looking uh, to figure out what we're going to do in America. But there'll definitely be some very extensive um, touring in America, and, and obviously um, we've done some festivals. You know, that, like I said, La Paloma and the Rock and yeah. Rios, and all that stuff. But it's time to. Uh, Come back and do some proper penetration of the of, of America. I am
2: sure the set list is going to feature lots of songs off the new album. I sure hope so.
3: And mm-hmm. Since I'm the one that writes the set list, uh, I'll make sure to put lots of new ones in there. It, no, it's, I mean, obviously, yeah. I mean, in all seriousness, we're we're itching to uh, to play. You know, in rehearsals for the show in Minneapolis, uh, where we're you know opening the Viking Stadium this Saturday, we've been uh, every day when we get in there, we're just playing the new songs, and then it's like, okay, uh, wait, now we gotta play Master Puppets, <laughs> and then we kind of stumble our way through that. But uh, the new stuff's super fun to play, and um, it's it's you know we're you know I, I it's probably it's probably you're you 're basically the first interview i 've done mm-hmm. <laughs> about any of this stuff so i, I don 't even like i don't have like I said any perspective on any of this it the new material probably not as um, some of the stuff on Death Magnetic was pretty heady or cerebral or you had to like really think about like what the next crazy part was that was coming up mm-hmm. some of the stuff uh, of of the new record uh, the, the new songs are they're a little more physical and uh it's going to be a lot of fun to play there's also some of these songs are a little bit shorter than um than death magnetic so i think it's going to be um it's going to be a lot of fun to throw uh many of these songs in and and when we play arenas or when we do full-on tours we we love we change the set list every night we we haven't played the same set list uh in over 10 years so we change the set list every night and there's uh Lots of new songs that we're going to have a lot of fun with, so we look forward to that.
2: Yeah, I was just looking at your set list stats, and you just played Master of Puppets. It was the 1,500th time.
3: <laughs> okay. <laughs> Yikes. <Yeah>. Okay. <laughs> well, that just aged us right there. Yeah. No, that's it's yeah. fine. I mean, it's, yeah. uh, you know, it, it, when you're you've been in the game for this long, yeah. you know, we're we're not down there to remember how master of puppets goes. We're down there to um, get the blood flowing and get the the limbs and the joints and all that stuff kind of lubed up and 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 you know just you know it's just the physical element of it. it it's like you gotta just kind of get the body limbered up again and, and get ready for the punishment yeah. that these shows are. You know. And
2: what's great is you guys still is you guys still strongly believe in the album that. As an art form, I speak to some veteran bands. They're like, "Oh, I'm done making records. Nobody cares. Like, why bother? or was going to tour, you no, know." But that, that's not no. your belief at all. Nah, yeah. No, yeah,
3: no, no. I mean, listen, you know, I understand that there may be some cynics out there. It's like, you know, make records. You know, it's been eight years or whatever. But yeah. I mean, if you just, I can tell you, and I know because I've been there for every moment. I can tell you that we're busier. And more enveloped in Metallica than we ever have been Metallica is is more of a of a full-time thing that it's ever been you know because back in the day we used to we used to have these different kind of uh, uh, I guess, dynamics or patterns, you know, we would, we'd write a record, we'd record a record, we'd tour the record, and then we'd, like, disappear for a year. Mm-hmm. But we don't disappear anymore. You know, we, we're we always... There's always a festival, hey, come play here, come do this, how about that? How about, you know, Record Store Day, let's do some reissues there. You know, there's always... there's You've got one foot in the future and one foot in the past, you know, and there's always this kind of interesting push and pull between kind of wanting to run amok into the future and discover new paths and new ways and at the same time sort of being respectful to your past and understanding that the past also has a fairly significant meaning because we spent the better part of the first I don't know 25 30 years almost turning our back on our past because we were so we were so... Fearful of repetition, mm-hmm. or 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 of sort of somehow repeating anything we've done before, and then one of the most significant things was when Rick sat down and said, "It's okay. You can you can you know it, be be happy about your past, be proud of your past. You can embrace your past for inspiration. You don't have to turn your back on the on your past. You know." And so now it's like this kind of interesting di- dichotomy. I mean, it was pretty surreal. Like this spring sitting and. Digging through the vaults and doing the ride the lightning and the kill them all and, and all that kind of stuff, you know, sitting there trying to remember what happened 30 years ago at the same time as we were recording new songs and looking, you know, into the future, you know. So there's this kind of interesting push and pull, but no, fuck, I hope we keep making records till the day we fall over. I I mean, that that's what, um, I think it certainly inspires you and that's what keeps keeps you a sense of relevance yeah. it gives you a sense of kind of still being in the game or whatever and I think that's important at least to us I certainly respect if other you know uh, the tears of ours feel different but for us uh, writing songs and and feeling that that we're still um got something to say is, is a, I think it's an important part of just feeling vital and feeling confident and feeling good about yourself you know
2: huh, I guess finally do you see yourself still doing this at age 65 and then even 70 or something about, like the stones
3: yeah you know what I mean I've, like I've said a lot in the last yeah. few years I mean the the only unknown is the physical element of it I mean it, huh. it, it if the if the arms and legs and knees and shoulders and throats and all that stuff, if all that, the backs and, the, you know, if, if all that, the necks, if, if all that stays intact, there's no reason that we shouldn't be able to do this for, for quite a significant amount of time. I mean, it, it, you know, the one thing, obviously, and I love the Rolling Stones more than anybody else on this planet, but, you know, or, or some other Comparable artist to that, but you know, you know, obviously, what we do. Some people could argue. I'd like to argue is maybe slightly more physically demanding. Yes. In terms of the energy and the weight that that goes into it, and so you know, like I've said before, the the unknown is is whether our bodies can sustain it, and also the second part of that is kind of whether there's a point where if you're playing a song like Battery or Master Puppets or One or some of these songs that have this kind of insane physical energy and demand, whether there's a point where if you can't play it at, I guess, the de- at the physical demand that it, it deserves, you know, whether it's better to not play it than to play it half-assed, or do you know what I mean? Sure. That's the part. That's the only unknown. I think mentally, um, mentally we could do this for another hundred years. It's just about whether the bodies can keep up.
1: And that's it for today's episode of Rolling Stone Music Now. If you like what you heard, please leave a review on the iTunes store or wherever you get your
3: podcasts.